So, in a multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is wise. In, in a noisy world, our minds become ever noisier and estranged from truth. From the truth that is wisdom. And we live in a post-truth world now, pretty obviously. Because we are so noisy, we cannot hear the silence. The White House, uh, you know, the press conferences at the White House become great uh, entertainment. Uh, I mean, the surreal entertainment. And the satirical, American satirical programs that try to, you know, make fun of them have a challenge because they're so funny and absurd in themselves that it's difficult to make fun of them. So, not surprisingly, now the White House is not holding uh, televised or audio uh, press conferences anymore. They, they don't want it. They don't want their the answers to the journalists' questions to be recorded. So, post-truth world, and any critical questioning is met with very aggressive responses. And you, truth, in an ordinary sense, getting at the facts, it's not entirely what truth is about, but spiritually speaking, but truth in the, in the common sense sense uh, is found through questions and answers and cross-questioning and definition of words. And all of that is problematical in a post-truth world. And so whenever there are any critical questions, uh, searching questions, they are attacked and this dismissed as fake news. So anything you don't like said about you is fake news. False statements are repeated endlessly and shamelessly even after they've been exposed as false. And eventually some people who want to believe them, of course, become totally convinced that they are the truth and everything else is fake. So this is you know, some of what we mean by uh, post-truth world and why it's important that we understand or try to understand what truth means and its relationship to silence and where is that middle point may be very difficult to find, but that, that middle point of integrity where we can speak about the truth and we can speak of the truth. There is, of course, a fake silence as well. The silence of denial, just continuously denying something that is right in front of you 
but continue to deny it, you will eventually bring it to silence, a fake silence. Or repression, either violent or psychological repression, or simple evasion of the truth, which uh, we are very familiar with in most political culture today, where we don't expect politicians to, ask, uh, to answer the question that they're actually answered. They will never, they never, they never will very, very rarely um, even try to answer it. The, the skill is in avoiding the, the question. So we can very easily see the difference between false and truthful silence through the fruit that it bears. Good, good trees bear good fruit. Rotten trees bear rotten fruit. John Paul II wrote an encyclical called Veritatis Splendor, The Splendor of Truth. He said, the splendor of truth shines forth in all the works of the creation, of the creator. Truth enlightens human intelligence and shapes our freedom, leading us to know and love the Lord. We need, I think, some sense of this meaning of truth, the truth that enlightens everyone, we need to have some spiritual sense, or if you like, metaphysical sense, of the truth, not just a scientific sense or definition of truth, in order for us to maintain any reasonable hold on truth in our social, political, professional communications, and even in our personal communications even in our personal lives and relationships. The noisier our minds become, the more saturated with the noise of the media and the distractions of the media, the more difficult it is even for a loving couple to really be truthful with each other. We need to have some experience or some aspiration to truth as universal. And that means non-partisan. It doesn't mean I'm telling the truth and therefore you are telling a lie. It's not partisan. The truth that becomes opinionated like that, that leads to just a slanging match shouting at each other or condemning each other or silencing, repressing the other per person's point of view by whatever means. That, is, that cannot be the truth. Truth isn't like that, just as truth cannot be reduced to statistics. We know how many false statistics modern politics uses. When Jesus was... <coughs> Uh, being tried by, the, by Pontius Pilate. And Pilate had some intuition that this was an unusual person. And he says to him, uh, who are you? What are you about? 
Jesus says, I have come to bear witness to the truth. There's a little pun in that perhaps also because to bear witness, the word for that in Greek is martyr. So I've come to suffer for the truth. I've come to die for the truth. And that tells us something about how unpopular the truth inevitably is in any power structure. Wherever there is an institution of power, truth will be one of the first casualties. Power structures, whether, it is whether they're religious or economic or political, power structures, the more hierarchical, the more obsessive, the powerful, power-centered, the games of power that go on, uh, the more difficult it is to tell the truth or for the truth to be heard. And so Jesus is silent. Pilate answers as a, as a power broker in an institution of power. He said, what is truth? You've come to bear witness to the truth? Well, yeah, you tell me what truth is. Truth is what I make it. Truth is what I can convince you is the truth. Truth is what my press conference can sell. And truth is what I can use to defeat other people who are expressing a different point of view. So, the truth then that Jesus is witnessing to that we need for human health and wholeness, it is universal and it has to retain its universality. It cannot be reduced to a, a creed or a ideology. Pope Francis said recently, uh, one of the great temptations of the church is to treat the gospel as if it were an ideology, to reduce it to something that can be uh, defined in intellectual, conceptual, theological terms. The truth, therefore, because it is universal, is best transmitted in paradox. And that's why the great scriptures are filled with paradox great paradox of the death and resurrection, that we have to lose our life in order to find it. The paradox that St. Paul discovered, when I am weak, then I am strong. And this is very important, I think, for us as, as modern Christians. It isn't that we have the truth. Christ is not the right answer. When Jesus says, I am the truth, he also says, I am the way and I am the life. And he doesn't reduce truth just to the right answer that destroys other arguments. And that is often precisely how Christians and 
some still today, of course, uh, understand the truth of Christ. That it is a particular version of, the tr of reality that excludes all others. It's not what the church or the Catholic Church teaches. The church, we're told now, rejects nothing that is true and holy in other religions. That hasn't quite filtered down, I think, very f everywhere in the Christian mind. We still have many centuries of habit of thinking that we have the truth and they don't. That's really what is at the heart of that book, uh, Silence, about Japan, the missionaries in Japan. And it's, so, the, the, the word truth in, in Greek, uh, Aletheia is the Greek uh, name for the goddess of truth. And uh, the meaning of the word literally is um, disclosure. Or something that is being revealed. Something that is opening the clearing in a forest. Reality rather than illusion. So it's not the answer, but it excludes other answers, the right answer. It is the revealing, the self-revealing of reality. And that's clearly not something that's going to convince Pontius Pilate or modern politicians or spin doctors or confidence tricksters who are frightened of the truth. That's their biggest enemy, is the truth. And that's why they try to dress up like the truth. They want to seem to be truthful. They can, they can uh, false prophets. Um, they can be very convincing because we also want to be convinced. But they can also get the truth to look like them. And this gives rise to the great danger of what in Sanskrit is called maya, which is often translated as illusion. But the word actually means literally the measurer, the one that measures. So maya is the power, as it were, or in thought, by which limitations and divisions are sh seen to exist within the oneness that is truth, the oneness that is reality. So. We see the world, reality, in parts, in divisions. This is how the left hemisphere of the brain works, of course, analytical. We break things down. The right hemisphere of the brain, the wiser one, contemplative one, sees things as a whole, sees things as connected, flowing together. The left hemisphere of the brain reduces them to its parts, reduces the universe to a mechanical system, which has advantages. You can solve a lot of illnesses that way, and you can 
build a lot of bridges that way. Uh, but it uh, misses the full truth. So Maya is what, what we associate with relativity or with duality. It's a certain way of seeing and experiencing the world that is very seductive because it offers us the possibility or the illusion of having control over the world. Divide and rule. We can rule this world provided we can control the bits and pieces that we uh, divide it up into. In Christ, St. Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free. So all of the major distinctions that we make about humanity, even the big one of gender, interestingly enough, gender identity is, is being reconsidered in Western culture a lot today. Uh, but all the ways in which we divide up the world, socially, economically, sexually, in Christ, these compartments and divisions don't exist. So here is a paradox. We can't deny, at some, in some way of course, that there are male and female people in this room. On the other hand, that perception of duality is that even that one, which is pretty basic, is there a, a truth in which male and female are united? And that division is no longer operating, it's no longer relevant, it's been transcended. Maya, which is the clinging to those divisions, it seems like common sense, but it's actually a denial of truth, the full truth. Maya is exposed and disempowered through silence. When we really pay attention, when we are really still in front of something and we really see it rather than looking at it and we listen to it rather than just hearing it as a noise, if we are truly paying attention to it, then we no longer see it through this uh, filter of illusion, of maya. Maya is like magic. It's very attractive. It's like a TV show, like Game of Thrones. Very absorbing. The surface play of wonderful and entertaining and moving forces. 
It's very seductive, as is the world in the language of the New Testament. The world is mea. It's not the physical world, it's not sexuality, it's not, it's not uh, a, a false condemnation of anything that isn't religious. That's not what the world means in St. John or in the especially. Uh, the world refers really to this mea. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Everything in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away along with all its desires. Well, talk about translation and uh, interpretation. Those words can be very easily twisted, very easily misinterpreted, to mean that you are only really good when you're in church and, and obeying what the pastor is telling you. Because that's the world out there. That's how the church has often uh, presented itself as opposed to the world, what it defines as the world. But what a terrible world it would be if that were true. So we have to think deeply and understand clearly what St. John means by the world and the desires of the flesh. It doesn't mean sex is bad or enjoying your food or your wine is bad. Or desires of the eyes. It doesn't mean that aesthetic pleasure is bad or looking at a beautiful body is bad or looking at a beautiful landscape is bad. Or the pride of life. Well, the, the natural exuberance and pride of an athlete or something like that or an artist in producing a great work. It's not that's that is bad in itself. It's when <coughs> we um, perceive reality only through the dualistic and um, divided prism of, of Maya. Silence lifts us out of that or dissolves that filter. And then, like Simone Weil, we can say creation is the silence of God. Then we look at the world, creation, and we see it filled with the silent being of God. So there's a huge danger here of misinterpretation of our words getting the better of us and translation being not updated. Religious people tend to be very conservative and cling to their old forms. And that's one of the great dangers. We don't move with the times. So we need to retranslate, we need to, to reinterpret continually. And the only thing that gives us 
the, the, the energy and the clarity to do that is silence. John Main used to say we, we need a new language to express the Christian truth. But that new language must come out of the experience of silence, contemplative consciousness. This means that we're not consuming what we see or listen to. We're not consumers. We're not possessing. We're tasting, we're enjoying, and we're letting go. There's a great poem by William Blake. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. So we are capable of this healthy, detached attachment. When we use the word <coughs> detached or detachment, it often sounds something cold and rejecting. We are detached from the world, so we keep a distance from it. We don't touch, we don't smell, we don't enjoy. It's dangerous. But that is equally false as, as the opposite, trying to possess it. So what we need is, of course, a detached attachment. We have to love the world, but really love it. That's what detached attachment means. The opposite of possessive attachment. And by their fruits you will know them. The fruits of detached attachment are, is, is happiness, kissing the joy as it flies, peacefulness, and generosity, the ability to share. And the fruits of possessive attachment are anxiety, fear, fear of losing, and clinging. So do we, want <coughs> do we want to create a space for silence in our lives? The more we look at the world, the noisy world, and our noisy minds, the more people there are, and the more we feel, yes, we probably should. This should, should be where the church is helping the world to create the space, to understand the meaning of the space necessary for silence. But we don't do that as isolated individuals, as atomized beings. That would be another form of illusion, of maya, where we see ourselves as divided and separated from others in a consumer competition. Who can get the bargain first? 
So if we do want to create a space for silence in our lives, where the truth can be lived and known, we need others. We need an experience of the interconnectedness of being. We need relationship. We need community. We need to develop an environment. Developing a truthful life within a community of love. That's why Jesus calls us to build the church, not as a power structure, but as a community of love. That's why monastery rather than the Vatican is, is, a, is, is a better model of the church. And this, this is always difficult to communicate. I was made aware of it just very recently. I was talking to somebody who said that they thought Bonvo was something for an elite. I thought, my God, how did they get that impression? And they had got that impression. Uh, I don't know how, by looking at pictures and saying how beautiful this is, or by... Uh, um, because I hadn't expressed it properly. And then they said, they, they saw it differently now. They understood what it was for. That it was for, it was to be a place of peace for peace. Because the world needs not just one bombo, but many, many centers where community can be experienced and nourished so that it, it allows uh, the widest range of people possible to, uh, to be in the silence of truth. So it's not easy to communicate this. And when you think you've communicated it, you're probably wrong. So we have to decide if we want to create the space for silence in our lives, and then we have to see what we need in order to do it. That will enable us to catch ourselves when we find that we are wasting time, refusing the opportunity for leisure. And life does provide us with opportunities for leisure rather than opting instead for distraction or just entertainment. To choose leisure rather than entertainment. We have to be able to uh, see that the flow of noise in our minds because we live in a noisy society, we're, we're going to be conduits for that noise to some degree. Maybe we need to take more time of retreat or, and be more faithful to those times of meditation. But we need to be able to see that our, our minds are noisy. And the first step is to quieten the mind and to replace some of the 
unhealthy, jangled, jumbly, chaotic noise with some healthy ideas. If you, if you, um, you can tune in at any moment of the day uh, or night to WCCM online radio. And uh, it's a flow of consciousness, of, of thoughts, talks, and all sorts of places within the community, punctuated by meditation times. So half an hour of silence, is it three or four times a day? Four times a day. The, the flow of thought and words on the radio is punctuated by times of meditation. So should our lives be. If we're going to be able to tell the truth at a press conference, we need to know and not be frightened of the truth and not be repressive of people with different opinions then we have to develop a right attitude towards thinking. And we have to make sure, as St. Paul says, that we fill our minds with good things, good thoughts, rather than images of violence or violence against women, which is what you get on most American TV programs, or gossip or triviality and lifestyles of the rich and famous, all of this stuff. So replace some of that garbage and junk food with interesting and stimulating uh, thoughts. But we still need to take time for non-thinking. Right thinking means it should be enjoyable and insightful and creative and productive, different from circular, obsessive fantasy thinking. And there is always a choice. Choice is always there. And meditation is the choice. It's not an obligation. It's not a uh, demand. It's not a rebuke. It's a choice. And it reminds us of the freedom to choose and to see the difference between those two ways of being. 